The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Somebody thought it would be a good idea to uh, let you guys know that I turned 40 today. So... We'll be looking for a couple of new administrative assistants this next week. Um, one thing I want to mention to you, I think we might have some of our folks from Welcome Week at UMHB here. We have the crew back today, do we? Yeah. Hey, we love you guys and we are so glad that you're here. If you're new today, my name is Chase Bowers. I'm the missions pastor here. Our lead pastor, Gary DeSalvo, is out today. Um, So you want to come back next week. He'll be closing out our series in Ecclesiastes. And then we'll be starting a series in the book of Acts called Unfinished. We'll spend about the next year in the book of Acts. It's going to be a great time of study together. If you are new here, every once in a while we have a newcomer's brunch. That's going to be Saturday, September 6th at 10 a.m. at the home of Gary and his wife Bev. If you'd like to attend that, you want more information about it, our ushers will be glad to give you a card if you just put your hand up and keep it up so they can find you. We'd love to see you there. And uh, crew, if you guys want to flash mob that, we're, we'd be thrilled for you to do that. Just don't tell Gary I told you, okay? Well, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 11. And, and also, just by the way, you may know this, you may not, but we have a real-time translation of our services into Spanish. There are headphones out there. If you know a native Spanish speaker, if you got a friend in your neighborhood that's a native Spanish speaker, might like to experience just hearing teaching in Spanish, but would love to be a part of somewhere like TBC, we've got folks translating, would encourage you, let them know. We've got headphones out there for the 11 o'clock service, and we'd be happy to have them here. Well, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. As we look there... Let's pause to ask the Lord to be with us during this time. Father, we thank You for Your great love for us. We thank You for the hope we have in Christ. And we thank You for the body of Christ, both here and all over the world. God, we thank You for Your Word and for Your Spirit. And we thank You, God, for this little book right in the middle of the Bible that gives us a great amount of wisdom. And gives us a clear-eyed view, as Stephen said the other day, into this warped world of life under the sun. Teach us from Your Word. Help us to learn from You and help us to be shaped by what we learn. For Your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen. Have you ever received advice that when you heard it, you thought, man, that's silly, that's not great advice and I really don't need it? And then you realize at some point later, oh, that was, that was great advice. Maybe some of the best I've ever received. Anybody out there that happened? If you've lived long enough, your hand should be up or you need hearing aids, okay? Because there will come a point where you hear some advice. For me, one of the more simple things is I was about to go into college. I thought I was probably going to pursue some sort of field in ministry. I was at a state school and my brother-in-law at the time said, man, you... If you're going into ministry, you need a business degree. I just thought, well, that's silly. Why would I need a business degree 
to work in a church, and those guys only work on Sunday anyway. So that didn't make any sense. I look back and see how that would have served me so well. Three or four other moments where men in my life have spoken things into me that I thought, oh, I don't know if that's right, and I've come to see that it's reality. See, to carry it further, sometimes, sometimes we receive wisdom or we find ourselves in a situation where the exact thing we need to do seems directly opposed to what we would be naturally inclined to do. Don't miss that. The exact thing we ought to do seems directly opposed to the very thing we're inclined to do. When my wife and I got married, we were on our honeymoon, went to Lake Louise, Canada, we're in the middle of a national forest, and one day we see a bear, I want a picture of this bear, I've got our little disposable camera, and so I get about from me to my friend James here on the second row, and this bear. And all of a sudden he raised up on his hind legs and introduces himself, Okay. And here's the thing, people say if a bear is aggressive, you stand dead still. But is that what I did? No, I look like these guys. (laughs) I got back to that car and my wife gave me what some would call gentle counsel about never doing that again. Another example would be if, if you're driving on ice and you start to slide, what are you naturally inclined to do? Hit the brakes. So I was driving... Through Arkansas, you drive through Arkansas, not to Arkansas if you can help it, right? (laughs) Driving through Arkansas, January 1997, there's an ice storm, and there's a little town called Brinkley that I've stayed in twice because of just bad situations and ice storms. I was forced to, and I'm about nine miles west of Brinkley, and I get on a bridge, and my car starts sliding. I hit the brakes instead of riding through the slide, and that's not my car, Um, But I just kind of played pinball off of guardrail and guardrail as 18-wheelers go by and survived that really without a scratch by the grace of God. See, sometimes what you ought to do is exactly the opposite thing that you'd be naturally inclined to do. It's even true in Scripture where we hear that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man or we hear things from Jesus like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you or bless those who curse you. Or if someone strikes you on one cheek, you know, in Texas, we're taught, strike them on their cheek. But that's not what Jesus told us to do. Offer them the other cheek. If someone asks for your cloak, offer your tunic also. Give to him who asks of you and don't demand it back. He gives this strange counsel. And that's the case as well in Ecclesiastes. Solomon's going to give us three things to do that seem directly opposed to what we would be naturally inclined to do. Even with a metaphor, he uses as he begins the chapter. He says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster or calamity may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. We don't want to miss that because he's making this transition. He says, Give a portion to seven or eight because you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Then he says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Nothing you can do to stop the rain. If a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who 
makes everything. So in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity or a vapor. So what in the world is Solomon telling us to do when he says, cast your bread upon the waters? When we read that, maybe in our culture, what we think of in our English translation is going to a pond and you throw out bread and ducks get it. That doesn't work. This bread's not coming back to me. The ducks are going to hit it. But really, the translation there is grain. Cast your grain upon the waters. Now, that sounds odd. If you're planting grain, you wouldn't just want to go throw it on water. That doesn't make any sense. But in Solomon's day and age, it would have made perfect sense because as they planted in Egypt along the Nile, he would have heard these stories. And what happens is in winter and in spring, every year the Nile floods. And then in the springtime, a little bit later on, when the floodwaters begin to recede, there's kind of just this thick goop. It's kind of water and it's kind of mud. And what, what the farmers do is they go and they just cast the bread out on this water. And as the water continues to recede, it seeps down into this rich Nile soil. And five or six months later, they have this amazing harvest. So he says, cast your bread upon the waters and it will return to you. Now when we see this kind of familiar theme in the Scripture of sowing and reaping, we're always careful to say this is not prosperity gospel where you go and you give a lot and you'll get a lot back in finance. That's, that's not what we're talking about. There is this idea of sowing and reaping, but it's more an idea of being generous. It's more an idea of being generous. So what is this counterintuitive advice that Solomon's going to give? It says, cast your bread upon the waters. Calamity may come, therefore sow generously. Now that's kind of an odd thing, because if calamity's coming, then I'm saving, Right? We don't have an idiom in our culture that says, hey, give for a rainy day, right? It says, save for a rainy day. But what what Solomon says is, calamity may come. Therefore, be generous. It's this idea that we see in James as well. See, today you can do good. Calamity may come. So be generous. While you have a day to do good, do it. Or as James says, to him who knows the good to do and does not do it, To him it is sin. It's an idea of radical generosity. Radical generosity. And when we see things like this and when we hear things like this, what we tend to think is, right, but I I mean, I've got to save. That's good stewardship. Well, we do want to be good stewards, but when we think about stewardship in the Scripture, typically Jesus talked about giving well more than He talked about saving well. And I just want to give you a couple of examples 
couple of examples. One is in Luke 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Right, right, right. And we get that. But listen, we, I mean, I've got to retire. I've got to make sure there's enough when I retire. Somebody said to me today, Chase, you turned 40. You're halfway there. I said, I hope that's right. I'm, I might be two-thirds of the way there. I might be three-fourths of the way there. I might be a day or even hours away. And you might be too. Now, typically that's not the case. There is a lifespan. We understand what averages are. But while you can do good, do good. Jesus said to his disciples, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, why would he say that? What's the context of that? Well, the context is there's a crowd of people and this guy comes up to Jesus in Luke 12 and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance of me with me. And he says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he tells him a story about this guy who had a great grain harvest and he filled up his barns so he had extra. And he said, you know what I'm going to do is build bigger barns. So I can store my grain. And God said to him, you fool. You fool. Who's going to keep what you've saved? Because this very night your life is required from you. And he went on to say to his disciples. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? See, I'm going to save this up, and I'm going to make sure I'm okay. Now, the extreme of this is something you might have heard of called the doomsday prepper. There's even a reality show about that. Anybody seen that? Listen, if you've not seen it, when you're done catching up to the seasons of Honey Boo Boo, you ought to watch that, okay? <laughs> so this show on Doomsday Preppers, they're, they're these guys, and so one of them is preparing for a massive earthquake to strike Alaska. So he's got guns and goods galore. Another's preparing for biological or chemical attack. Another is preparing for the supervolcano that hides under Yellowstone to explode and destroy the world. So when that happens, I'm not sure that bunker is going to work out real well. But then there's this guy from Texas. When I heard it and watched it, I thought, man, why couldn't he have said Arkansas? (laughs) And this guy has got a room full of more guns than I've ever seen and more food than I've ever seen stacked up in a room. And listen, I grew up hunting. I enjoy shooting guns. You can tell I've got my own stockpile of food, right? But then they bring their pastor in to pray over this room. And this pastor says, God, we thank you for this room. Because of it, we have a haven to come to in the day of trouble. I said, what? Wait a minute. 
I mean, we have a haven to come to. But it's not some room with guns and food. It's a person. Jesus Christ. So that's the extreme of hoarding and anxiety. George MacDonald said, No man ever sank under the burden of the day. It's when tomorrow's burden is added under the burden of today that the weight is more than a man can bear. Isn't that really adding a burden, kind of chasing trouble? When... When the writer of Ecclesiastes says, listen, you don't know when calamity is coming, so so generously give a portion to seven or eight. Share and do good while you can. And listen, there's no question that we as a church are about that, that you as God's people are about that. As individuals, it's just an opportunity to examine ourselves and see am I really living out the radical generosity he's called us to. Now, we can see glimpses of that, and I praise God for that, that there were just scores and scores of backpacks when we had backpack buddies this summer. Scores and scores of backpacks for kids in our community that need school supplies. Or when we do the drop, if you're new here, every first Sunday of every month, we take groceries, put them at the back of your car, people come along and pick them up, and we partner with churches touching lives for Christ in our community to get that food out to those in need. And we're grateful for that. That's what it looks like locally. Globally, it looks like this. You guys are in the news watching this group, formerly known as ISIS, the Islamic State, wreaking havoc in Iraq. One of the local churches in northern Iraq has had this great influx of refugees who have fled from ISIS. And so they've got families that need help. And so we looked, and because of your generosity, we've got excess in our mission fund. And we're able to say, here's $9,000 to take care of 45 families for the next several weeks. Our sister churches in Rwanda, before Tim took our team over, said, hey, could you guys supply health insurance for a family for a year in Rwanda? And I know what health insurance costs in America, so I just said, well, how much is that? And he said, well, it's $4 a person, which is different than it is in America. But in, in rural Rwanda, that'll get you more health care than you've got. The catch is they love family in Rwanda, so you don't supply health insurance for a person. To supply for one member of a family, you have to be willing to supply it to every member of the family, which is going to be at least six people. And so by the grace of God, we're able to supply health insurance for over 100 families in the Basse region because you're a generous body. And we praise God for that. It's such a joy as a missions pastor to see when we've got local needs or global needs, you guys step up. And Solomon just reminds us, step up all the more. Cast your bread upon the water. Do good while you can. So the first thing he says, the first thing he says is cast your bread upon the water. Cast your bread upon the water. And it will return to you. Give a portion to seven or eight because you don't know what calamity is coming. So the next thing he says is God is sovereign. God made everything. God made everything. As you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. He's telling us that God is sovereign. 
Now, there's this reality throughout Ecclesiastes that the world is broken because of sin. God is sovereign. The world is broken. Therefore, live faithfully. Therefore, live faithfully. Sometimes, when people think about the sovereignty of God, there are kind of two things that they do. One is they think, well, I really don't have to do anything. God's sovereign. I don't have to do anything. He's sovereign. He'll take care of that. That's, that's kind of odd because aren't you really saying... God's sovereign, therefore I'm going to do what I want. Well, that's not really God being sovereign. That's kind of you being sovereign, right? I'll be Lord over me. So if He's sovereign, what we've got to do is joyfully submit. Now the other thing that happens, the other thing that happens is that we really wrestle and push against the sovereignty of God. We do not like it naturally. We're bothered by it. In the garden before sin came in, Adam and Eve weren't bothered by it. When sin entered the world, there were consequences from sin. Brokenness abounded because of sin. And people got bothered by the sovereignty of God. And we're still bothered by it. We're bothered by it because we think we know. But over and over and over in this chapter, you do not know. You don't know what disaster may happen on earth. You do not know the way the Spirit comes into a life You do not know the work of God who makes everything. You do not know what's going to prosper. So it's really a call to live faithfully because God is in fact sovereign. Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Ten simple English words, five simple Hebrew words. Dr. George Grant says this, that Genesis 1.1 asserts the absolute sovereignty and proprietary lordship of God Himself. Listen to that again. Genesis 1.1, it asserts the absolute sovereignty and proprietary lordship of God Himself. And it's not just Genesis 1.1. I was talking to a pastor from another church in our area the other day, and he said, man, one time I got sick and I read the Bible through in 38 days. And he said there was one word that just kept coming up over and over and over. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He rules over it. And I want to tell you guys who are in college, press into that. Press into that. Wrestle with the sovereignty of God. Now, don't become that religion major who walks around to his friends and says, I'm a nine-point Calvinist. And if you're not, you're wrong about everything. Let's not be that guy. People who embrace God's sovereignty ought to be the most loving people in the world. But wrestle with it. Wrestle with the Scripture. John Piper talks about how when he was in college, he hated this doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But as he read through the Scriptures in places like the entire book of John, Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans 9, he said, I just found that it was a tiger I could not tame. It was a tiger I couldn't tame. And I think that's a great metaphor because here's the idea. I mean, you can, you can catch a tiger by the tail, but then what are you going to do with it? See, He's sovereign and He's loving. And we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Our college pastor, Shannon, gave me a quote this week that I absolutely love. Oswald Chambers it says, Beware of the inclination to dictate to God. What consequences you would allow as a condition of your obedience to Him. 
Listen to that again. Beware of the inclination to dictate to God what consequences you would allow as a condition of your obedience to Him. What that, what that really is saying is this kind of idea, I'm not going to serve a God who, and you fill in the blank. Well, if He's God, He's probably not up in heaven going, oh, if they won't serve me if I'm like that, I'll change. You've got to be careful. What does that look like? Let's think about it in a light way and then really dive into that. What it would look like is for Gary, who's a big LSU fan, he would just say, listen, I'm not going to serve a God who would allow Nick Saban to move to Alabama and then win national championships. I'm not doing that. See, when I was a teenager, it looked like this for me. God, I'll, I'll trust you if my dad will just come back. But until then, nah. I'll have nothing to do with you. Well, you can't tame that tiger. You can't control how your kids are going to turn out, parents. You can't control it. Pray for me. I got four. I don't know how they're going to turn out. See, we, it's good for us to remember as we take verses like I think it's Proverbs 22, 1 that says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he'll not depart from it. Well, first, it doesn't mean that. Raise your kid in church and they'll come back. That's not what that's saying. But second, that's a proverb, even in its correct meaning. It's not a promise. You don't know how your kids are going to turn out. Now, you can help them to see what it looks like to follow Christ deeply and faithfully. And typically, that shines pretty bright in a dark world. You don't know what the government's going to do, and you can't control it. I know that comes as a surprise to many of you. It doesn't matter how much you put stuff on Facebook. You're not going to fix this broken government. (laughs) Not going to happen. You can't control the economy. You can't control the economy. Beware the inclination to dictate to God what consequences you would allow as a condition of your obedience to Him. The irony in this is that people who've suffered most tend to understand this best. Now I'll tell you that my wife and I have not suffered on any measure like many of the friends that we have. We would say through some death and loss we've experienced that this last year was probably the most difficult year we faced as a married couple. And I'll tell you, when you think about not wanting to serve a God, I don't want to serve a God who doesn't know what I need before I ask. And if God's not sovereign, that's who He is. Or in the midst of these days of trouble, when I'm doubting Him, I don't want a God whose grace that saved me can't keep me in Christ. I want a sovereign God. My friend Celestin Musakura, who many of you have heard as he's shared with us. Listen, if anybody were going to say, I'm not going to serve a God who... Celestin survived the Rwandan genocide. He was tortured in death camps. He saw friends and family members murdered. He saw others starving to death. And now as he serves throughout Central Africa, through alarm, he'll tell you, We've got to rest in the sovereignty of God in this broken world. We've got to rest in the sovereignty of God in this 
broken world. So we can ask all kinds of questions about things that we cannot control. We can stay up at night and lose sleep over things we cannot control. Or we can ask this question. How do I follow Christ deeply and faithfully in a broken world? How do I follow Jesus deeply and faithfully in a broken world? What a great question. Let's see, if I follow Christ deeply and faithfully in a broken world, then, then my kids will know what it looks like. See, if I follow Christ deeply and faithfully, I mean, you think about the Apostle Paul and those first century believers who are following Christ in the midst of a broken and messed up Roman Empire. Now, 300 years later, them just following Christ deeply and faithfully had turned the world upside down. How can I follow Christ deeply and faithfully in a broken world? See, anxiety can keep you from really doing anything. Rather than trying to extinguish the individual fires of worry that encircle us, we must identify the source of the flame, one author says. Anxiety is most often sparked by unbelief or doubt in God's character. When we worry, we've unthinkingly questioned His wisdom, that He knows what is best, His love and goodness, that He cares for us and wants what is best for us, and His sovereignty, that He's able to do what is best, that in fact in due time He will set all things right. See, sometimes anxiety causes us to freeze and sometimes we're just waiting for the right moment, whether it's the idealist or the procrastinator who says, well, I'm not going to follow Christ deeply and faithfully because the time is just not right. He says, if you observe the wind, you will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. What's the idea there? There's never going to be a perfect time to follow Christ deeply and faithfully. For some of you, it's this. Listen, I'll jump into a small group or a community group whenever I find one that doesn't have sinners in it. Well, good luck on that. You know, I really like to read the Bible after I've had coffee, and if I don't get my coffee in the morning in time, then I really don't have time to jump in the Scripture. Listen, if you don't have coffee, I know some of you, that's when you really need to have been in the Word. I don't, I mean, I don't know what my neighbor's going to do if I walk over there and just tell them who I am and try to begin an evangelistic relationship by getting to know them. When the time is perfect, I'll go over and say, Hi, I'm Chase, nice to meet you. Really stretching our faith there, right? See, there's not going to be a perfect time. So in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. You do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. See, calamity may come, so Solomon tells us to be generous. God is sovereign. So God, God's Word tells us to be faithful. And then God is going to judge us all. Verse Nine, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now when you read that, 
typically people will be inclined to either kind of pull back and just live in, as a hermit or in a compound away from people, not engaging culture with the love of Jesus Christ. Or people who just have a, a set of rules. This is a list and I'm going to follow it. And if I do this, God won't judge me. And oh, by the way, if you're not following my list, I'm going to judge you too. And the problem is that other person, they got a list and you're not following it. So it doesn't work out real well. But that's not what Solomon says. He says in verse 10, Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. It's a call to live a joyful life. It's a call to live a joyful life. It's interesting because he says, Go after what's pleasing in your eyes. Similar phrase to there in the garden. What Adam and Eve did or Walk in the ways of your heart, but know that God will bring you into judgment for these things. Now, most often in the Old Testament, when you read the word judgment, there's a connotation of judgment that's coming at the end of days. But that's not the case in this verse. It's more sometimes just that there's a judgment that plays out. There's a judgment that plays out. Listen, this is the most simple and plain and obvious advice, but to college students, I'd say, here's a great example of that. Don't date an unbeliever. If you're following Jesus, don't date an unbeliever. Now, undoubtedly, as I say that, some of you are thinking, well, my, I mean, my dad was saved, my mom wasn't, my mom was saved, my dad wasn't, it's worked out for them. Or some of you are in here and thinking, well, we did it and it worked out for us. Listen, when I was 20, a friend of mine had an MR2 Spider Turbo, an old Toyota that went really, really fast. We'd stayed at another college on a Sunday night. We're coming back Monday morning for class. And I was asleep as he's driving and I wake up to the car shaking. And I can just feel that we're just flying. And I look over at the speedometer and it's 140. I survived that. I'd encourage you not to drive 140 miles an hour. See, just because it works out sometimes doesn't mean it's the way. And for every one, every one marriage between an unbeliever and a believer that works out, and some of you are believers and you're slugging it out in that marriage, stay faithful. But the majority of the time, there's pain and there's heartache and there's difficulty and judgment for not following sound advice and kind of pursuing the ways of your heart. And what's pleasing in your eyes. Sometimes it just works itself out in life. It might be pleasing to your heart just to be rude to people. I'm going to say what I want, think what I want. If my friends don't like it, I really don't care. Well, you might end up finding yourself with not very many friends if that's how you are. Sometimes it has a way of just working it out. The idea here, though, is, is not that we would walk in legalism that we'd walk in joy, that we'd enjoy life. But we do that inside parameters that God has given us. There's a way to follow Christ deeply and faithfully that is filled with joy in His presence. There's a way to follow Christ deeply and faithfully that's filled with joy in His presence. And I, I think it looks like this. It's that you're pursuing God, but you're not doing that alone. You're pursuing that as part of the people of God. 
So what that means is certainly that you're part of this body on Sunday morning, but that's really just the beginning. If you want a joyful life in Jesus, that's got to come in the context of community. We are the gathered people of God, but we're not experiencing community this morning. We're looking at the Word together. Community comes with intimacy in a smaller group. So you heard the announcement about a great connection opportunity if you're not diving into community. College students... Um, if you were in, in our college Sunday school, you heard about Sea Life and what they do on Wednesday nights. Great opportunity there to plug into community. Shannon, when does that start? Next week. So next week, Sea Life on Wednesday night is a great chance to plug into the local church and really experience community and understand what does it look like for me to follow Christ deeply and faithfully in a broken world. How are we going to do that? How are we going to bring the gospel to bear on this book written hundreds of years before Jesus was born? We do it this way. Jesus is Savior. We've got a Savior so we can trust Him, which means that even if calamity might be coming, we can be generous. We can be joyful. And we can rest in what we do not know. Because there's so much we just don't know. He who did not spare His own Son, will He not freely give us all things? See, we can trust Him. He's Savior. He's Savior. He's not just Savior, though. He's sovereign. And because He's sovereign, we can faithfully and joyfully obey Him. And we can surrender our desire for control. We can surrender our desire for for control, wasn't it really precisely in surrendering in the most awful situation that Jesus, in fact, displayed His authority the most clearly? So you want to ask, well, what in the world does it look like to follow Christ deeply and faithfully? What does it look like to surrender to a sovereign God in the midst of a crooked and broken world? It looks like this. There's a Son who has loved the Father perfectly for all eternity past. And He's hanging naked and bleeding for you and me, fully submitted to the sovereign God's will. That's what it looks like. You die daily. You see, through His death, And resurrection, He became the King of kings and Lord of lords, clearly displayed. He had an eternal authority and then He showed off an earned authority. When you die to yourself, you can live this new life because He's Savior and because He's sovereign. We can live a joyful life in Him while we wait for this day for Him to set all things right. And hear me, church, He will set all things right. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Him as your Savior and as your Sovereign King. And we would love for you to know Jesus Christ, to be part of this church body. If you don't know Him, if you've not experienced His forgiveness and His grace, I'm going to be here for a few moments when we're done. would love to visit with you about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You.
for your great love for us. We thank you, God, for this sacrifice for the sins of the world that you made through giving your Son. God, we thank you for the resurrection and we thank you for this reality that while we labor to be generous and joyful and faithful people, there's coming a day when you will set all things right and for all those who are in Christ, you'll wipe every tear from our eyes. So God, help us shine like stars in this broken world. Help us be light in this darkness. And help us to walk away from this place not paralyzed by what we can't control, but rather asking, how can we follow you deeply and faithfully this week? That you might be glorified and that our lives might be filled with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you're dismissed.